You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. The housing market is red hot. The median home price rose 13% year over year. Active listings fell 28% to an all-time low. Sales of new homes accelerated by 4.8% in August to an annual rate of 1 million units. That's the highest since 2006. New home inventory fell to a 3.3-month level, the shortest period going back to 1963. What is going on and will it last? I'm Kathy Fetke and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Well, who better to fill us in than Robert Dietz, the chief economist for the National Association of Home Builders, where his responsibilities include forecasts of housing and economic trends, survey research, and home building industry and policy analysis. And he's here with us on The Real Wealth Show. So Robert, welcome. Great. It's good joining you today. It's really great to have you here because I have so many questions. For one, uh, housing has really rebounded. It looks like a V-shaped recovery. What are your thoughts on that? Is it is it going to be a W or a V? <laughs> I, I'm sticking with a V. I mean, if you go back to March and April, we were, we were definitely concerned about uh, home prices, the, the outlook for home building. But I think the combination of low interest rates admittedly a recovering economy, but a real focus on home and the importance of single-family housing uh, has led to a lot of strength in housing demand. And we've seen that in mortgage application data, and we've certainly seen it in uh, new home sales. Yeah, it's, it's just incredible. And it seems obvious. Mo- many people are thinking they'd like to be in a nice, clean new home and get out of the, the cities that seem to be um, yeah, not the safest places or the cleanest places to live these days. So um, let me ask you, how long do you think this will last? Let's just talk about the rest of 2020. You think it'll continue at this pace? Maybe not at this pace, but uh, we think housing demand is going to be solid. And the pickup that we've seen in home building certainly looks like it's going to continue. Um, home builder confidence, which is something we measure here at the National Association of Home Builders on a monthly basis, is actually now at a 35-year high. And that's uh, due to higher traffic numbers. I think the low interest rates, which are going to continue for the next couple of years, thanks to uh, policy actions of the Federal Reserve, will sustain uh, the the strength that we've seen in home demand. And really, the challenge that we have right now is the challenge that's been in the marketplace for the last four or five years, which is a lack of inventory. Um, It's not just the resale inventory that's really tight right now. Uh, Existing home inventory is only about three months supply nationwide, but for new home inventory, it's about a 3.3-month supply, and increasingly builders are selling homes that haven't even started construction yet. Yeah, as a, as a builder myself, and we, we syndicate and have residential communities all, all over the country, it's so difficult to be able to forecast because sometimes it's three, five, or 10 years down the road before you can actually build anything. Uh, but what we're finding is that, as you know, um, material costs are going up, specifically lumber, that's going to drive prices up further. At what point does it become unaffordable? Well, in in some cases, we're actually there right now. And it's not a kind of an either or, as you know, as as those prices go up, you price out certain buyers from the market. And and lumber is a good example of that. Now, lumber has gone up in a sense as a sign of strength that we've seen in in housing. Lumber prices are up more than 170% since mid-April. 
There's some signs that maybe those prices are beginning to level off. We could see some some declines, but right now they're adding probably about $16,000 to a typical new home build. And, and we estimate that for every $1,000 you add to a newly built home price, you're probably pricing out about 159,000 home buyers nationwide. So it begins to crowd things out. I, I think right now, though, that the challenge of the market is really kind of delays. It, it's taking longer to get some of those lumber. It's taking longer to get uh, building materials and other kinds of appliances. And what we're seeing are the the legacy effects of some of the uh, disruptions we have in supply chains. So, you know, from, from a customer perspective, yes, new construction is an option, particularly if you're moving to those lower density markets and away from the urban areas, but you're going to have to be patient because things may take longer and uh, some of the costs are going up. So is it COVID-related delays or is it, you know, something else, something political? You know, it's a combination of factors. I, I I do think as an economist, we like to say that trade is, is important. And I think trade does, you know, tend to you know, lower costs and, and grow economies. And so trade is disrupted and that is having an effect. And so things like lighting fixtures and plumbing fixtures that we imported from overseas, those supply chains are, are kind of moved around. On lumber, uh, it's complicated. Some of it is COVID issues. Uh, you know, there's not enough workforce to step up domestic production of lumber. That's complicated by the fact that we have a 20% tariff on Canadian softwood lumber. Um, but, you know, overall, you know, the supply side of the market is going to have to repair like the rest of the economy. And that includes, by the way, uh, bringing workers uh, back into the industry. Um, we've had a supply or a skilled labor shortage in the industry for quite some time. We lost the number of jobs in, in March and April as the economy downshifted. But I think in the next two or three months, due to rehiring, residential construction will actually post a gain in terms of the number of jobs that we have on a year-over-year basis. So, you know, the supply chain, the labor supply, making sure that land and lots are available to build on, all those factors really determine how much housing we can supply in a given year. So what do you do about the skilled labor problem? I mean, we've been talking about that for 10 years now. Uh, it seems like an incredible opportunity to provide that kind of training, especially now that there's a lot of people looking for work. What kind of, uh, you know, where do you get that kind of training? That's exactly right. And and so, you know, we need to take advantage of bring people in the industry. Uh, just as an example, we, we did some analysis over the last couple of weeks that only 10% of the construction labor force consists of women. And it's only 3% of uh, the occupation of construction, actually, you know, swinging hammers and doing the work. So whether it's recruiting population groups that we haven't done a particularly good job of the last few years, or taking advantage of the fact that unemployment is now elevated for the rest of the economy, it's local home builders associations, state associations, the Home Builders Institute, working with trade schools and community colleges to bring people into the industry. And there's another source, by the way, that's also available. While housing's a bright spot, non-residential construction is probably going to suffer a period of economic weakness for a number of years. So we can bring some of those workers into the industry. And then, by the way, while we're recruiting people, we need to find ways to build more with less. We've got to increase productivity in the sector. And so that means training. And, you know, for someone coming into the industry for the first time, it could take about 18 months to really kind of bring them up to a kind of that skilled position. And this is all just uh, trying to solve the, what we've called the middle skills crisis. And it's going to take years. It's a, it's a slow process, but we get yard by yard and make things better as we go along. 
Yeah, there was a builder in Colorado, I think, that was offering an academy. Uh, if, if people would come and and um, I, I don't know if they had to pay. I think maybe maybe they got paid. Maybe they didn't get paid, but they were trained. You know, on the job training. I have a a close. My, one of my daughter's close friends is 24 and he really wants to be in the industry. And it's like, he doesn't really know what to do. And when he worked for a home builder, he just got stuck digging ditches and that wasn't what he was trying to learn. So no. that, that to me seems like an incredible opportunity to open some kind of school like that, especially if a builder could do that. And you are seeing some local associations. I, I think you may be referring to some of the activities that took place in like Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, there's different efforts underway. Um, and I think really the industry needs to partner with what I think is the, the hidden gem of the U.S. education system, which is the community college system. Um, finding ways to train people uh, that way and then bring them into the sector. Because construction is an industry that pays above uh, median wages and it's a great place uh, after a number of years of building your skills to launch your own business. So you could be working as an independent contractor and then 10 years uh, own your own framing crew or plumbing company. Uh, and so it's, it's a great kind of place to, to get started for small business. So knowing that costs are going up and it will get to a point of um, lack of affordability, do you see any builders really coming out with product that is more affordable with the use of technology with the, um, you know, we've, we're seeing, yeah. I mean, are you seeing anybody being more creative in that space? The the creativity is, has been turned on, whether it's going to happen at scale to really affect the, the housing affordability crisis that we have, I think is another issue. So there's a lot of different ways that have been speculated in terms of trying to find new ways to build uh, to bend the cost curve and, and provide that particularly entry-level uh, housing that we really need. So examples that have been thrown out there include modular construction, panelized construction. This is where you're building either some or in the, almost the entire house in a factory. The share of those kinds of activities is pretty small. It's only about 3% of construction. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of kind of maybe more hype than hope. I think the share is going to grow, but the technology is really not quite there yet to do this kind of activity at scale. Um, I think ultimately, you know, getting productivity gains in the sector is really a function of training people and bringing them in the sector. And then we also have to reduce the regulatory costs associated with developing land and undertaking construction activities. That's really kind of the the low-hanging fruit when it comes to uh, bending the cost curve. And what what are the chances of that? I'm in California. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, you know, the, the, for a typical newly built home, about a quarter of the price at the end of the day are various kinds of regulatory costs that get built into the system. And, and two-thirds of that total is actually at the land stage. So California is famous or infamous for having high permit fees and impact fees and other factors that tend to drive things up. So, you know, a common question I get when I talk to local policymakers is, why aren't builders building more entry-level $200,000 or $150,000 newly built homes? Well, when the permit fee can be $100,000, it's difficult to build a $200,000 home. And that really is the challenge. And we kind of touched on it earlier, but there is this suburban shift taking place as a result of the virus. We know the virus is accelerating a lot of economic trends that were already in place. And I think one of the things that we're going to see is that uh, buyers who now maybe have a little more flexibility to travel to a new market are going to be able to purchase a home in a lower cost, which ultimately in many cases means a lower regulatory burden environment when it comes to construction and development. 
Yeah, and and something that people really just don't think enough about, I think, is the utilities. I mean, you could build houses, but you need water, you need electricity. I remember when we first started building and investing in Texas, people were like, "Oh my gosh, you'll never make money there. There's nothing but land." But there's <laughs> <laughs> there's more to it than land, right? right. So um, I think Colorado has big issues on that. Like land can be cheap, but maybe or but you don't get the water rights. So where is that more of a problem? Than you know, than not. Well, the, the the highest regulatory environments are often coastal markets, and, and so it's it's correlated with those land prices, the places where land's most expensive, and some of that higher price land is because people want to live in those kinds of environments. But it's also a function of those tend to be the markets that tend to have the higher impact fees, the higher challenges, the longer land development cycles where land could take ten years. Uh, before it can actually be brought to to be built on. Um, so I think one of the things that we're seeing right now is this this kind of shift taking place. And I'll, I'll give you a good example of it. Uh, for a while, population growth in the Midwest has been flat. And one of the things that we've seen this year uh, coming out of the, uh, the, the virus-related recession is gains in home construction in places like Columbus, uh, Indianapolis, Kansas City, these are lower regulatory cost environments, and then they join their, their peers in, in southern markets that have seen growth already, North Carolina, Florida, Texas, as places where we see gains this year. The places where things are not growing as quickly, in fact, posting negative growth rates, unfortunately, does include some of the California markets that are down on a year-to-date basis. And I think that's it's a cost consideration. And, and ultimately, home buyers will vote with their feet and find places where they can live uh, more affordably. Yeah, we stopped building in California for that reason. Like you just said, it was uh, $135,000 in just in fees, you know, and then we just went three hours away to Reno and I think it was 15000 or something. It was a huge difference. And, and but that's Reno changing too. Markets. Yeah, Reno is one of those markets this year has got a lot of growth and it's for just that reason. Yeah, and when when more builders come and when the city council starts to pay attention, then all of a sudden there's more regulation. <laughs> you got to get in there early. All right. Now, what areas would you say maybe are on the cusp of being overbuilt, if any? Well, so I don't know if overbuilt necessarily the right word, but certainly the multifamily sector right now has got weakness. Um, there's concerns about people paying the rent. And thus far, I think the economy's done better and renters have done better than expected in terms of being able to pay that rent. But we are seeing rising vacancy rates. You're seeing additional use of rent concessions. Um, and I think, you know, that that urban suburban story is part of it. So, um, you know, to the extent that if you've got a metro market and had a lot of apartment construction over the last two to three years and some of that apartment, you know, par- typical apartment can take 18 months to build out there. There might be too much inventory in the pipeline for some of those places. So I, I think you got to be careful with high rise multifamily. But it's not the entire rental market. Uh, Low-rise multifamily, you know, garden-style apartments that have a, a door directly to the outside so you don't have to take an elevator, that's going to be in demand. And then the single-family rental market is kind of an interesting blend between single-family for sale and multifamily. There's a lot of people right now that want the yard, they want the suburban aesthetic, but they can't afford to buy a single family home. And so whether it's mom and pop uh, uh, investors who are, are operating a single family home, or in some cases, builders who are doing single family built for rent, that's an interesting market, which although small, it's only about 4% of construction, we think is going to have some growth here over the next couple of years. 
because it seems to be that people want more space. They're working at home. They're studying at home. They're exercising at home. And they're going to seek out uh, places where they can gain it. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people, I don't think this pain is going to go away anytime soon of being locked in your apartment or being in a high rise, very expensive condo where you can't use any of the amenities or being in a a city like New York City, where the whole point is going out and being around people, being at fancy restaurants and entertainment, and you can't do that. Uh, So you're just going to have to entertain yourself at home and you need more space. Let's go back to multifamily. Which markets would you say will um, are at more risk of being overbuilt? Because I know there's a lot of new units coming online just just over the next 12 months. Yeah, I, I think I think places where you've seen a lot of growth with respect to apartment construction, uh, you know, markets where uh, multifamily activity has been particularly hot. You know, a good example would be like Austin. You know, some of that is going to slow down because you know a market like Austin that depended a lot on younger individuals moving into those apartments. That's where a lot of the unemployment is concentrated. Um, and then, like I said, I think structurally it, it would be markets that are uh, depend a lot on high-rise development. Uh, the two that have obviously been cited by a lot of people are New York and San Francisco. Uh, you're, you're seeing whether it's moving truck data, rent data, uh, vacancy rate data. Those are places where apartments moving through the pipeline are going to face higher vacancy rates until we get a vaccine. And then that becomes the next economic debate, which is how much of this change is going to persist or how much of it is going to roll back when we get back to something normal, uh, which could happen next summer. I think some of these changes, by the way, will persist. There's a ratchet effect. And and the best example of that is working from home. Uh, Pretty good government data right now indicates about a quarter of workers are working from home. And before the virus crisis, it was probably about four or five percent. Now, not all of those people are going to continue to work from home, but even if a half or a third of them do, it does mean a change in geography. And I think, you know, if you're classifying market by market, it's the higher density, higher cost markets that are in, ch- in trouble, and it's the lower density, lower cost markets that can really see some growth uh, because people will have more freedom to either live a little further out from the, the urban core or in some cases live somewhere else entirely if, if they're working entirely remotely. Absolutely. We are, we have a subdivision we're building in just outside of Bozeman, Montana. And when, when we purchased the land, it was so cheap, but it was risky. Um, the, the main point was, well, there's no other builders there. So at least we have no competition. <laughs> well, you wouldn't believe, I mean, you might, you would believe uh, we are sold out. I mean, just phase one, we haven't, <laughs> we hadn't even broken ground and, and um, there was a wait list because you could be uh, 45 minutes from some of the best skiing in the world. You've got some of the best fishing, best hiking, mountain trails, and, 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 uh, you know, you can, you can get your job done and you can, if you need to go into the office, well, you know, you can fly there for one or two days, but, um, that's why our Reno properties, I think are going to do really well and have been selling quickly because you can, you can live in Reno and be near Tahoe, but if you need to go into San Francisco for a day, it's, it's not that far. And a good example of that, the, the experience of Boise, Idaho, over the mm-hmm. last 10 years has just been incredible in terms of uh, the, the amount of growth that's taken place. So the mountain states, I think, are, are winning. It's, it's some of the more expensive coastal markets where the virus is a one-two punch. They, they already faced housing affordability challenges because of these regulatory costs. And then the virus itself it does appear to have a larger effect on high-density markets. Now, I worked in the news 
media business for years. And I know that if it bleeds, it leads, you know, we got to always have those negative headlines to get people's attention. And we've seen lately the, you know, the headlines of all these foreclosures coming because of forbearances. And I know John Burns uh, disagrees with that. And a few other people that I, I listen to who track the data, it's my opinion that they're just going to have loan modifications. Um, not a bunch of foreclosures when people can't make the payment, because of course the lack of payment was not really due to a fault of their own. This was a this was a very unusual time. I mean, would you agree? Do you think we're going to see a flood of foreclosures over the next year? I, I, I think it's gonna it's gonna be higher than it was in 2019, but it's not going to be a flood. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the Mortgage Bankers Association's data on some of these things, I think about half the people that applied for foreign barons uh, did so in March and April, mostly as insurance policy. And so, yes, there's going to be some some elevated risk, but the, you know, the, some of the forecasts that we saw back in the spring of home price declines, and it was people kind of having echoes of the Great Recession, those those are not going to turn out. Uh, the, the, we are inventory starved in the market. I think you know lenders are going to work with those who do have long term unemployment. But you know, if you're looking at the primary way or the primary uh, uh, way to forecast whether people are going to pay their mortgages is the unemployment rate. And we're already down to 8.4% off of probably a top rate of 16%. The labor market continues to improve. And so I'm, I'm fairly uh, you know, positive in terms of the ability to pay mortgages, a little more concerned about some of the rent issues as we go into the winter. So tell me more about that. Well, so some of the numbers, I think, are exaggerated. I mean, you've probably seen the headlines about the idea of 40 million people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> those numbers are off by probably a decimal point, right? Yeah. Uh, if, if you look at some census data, if you look at some of the survey data, uh, you know, it's not 40 million. It's in, in the single digit millions, the people who are at risk. There is going to be some impact there uh, for multifamily uh, residential. Uh, Some people have been living off of the expanded unemployment insurance benefits. Uh, Those, by the way, caused some problems in the labor market, but they did provide some income support. We'll have to see what the the future of uh, emerging, I think, compromise coming on another stimulus bill that could help. But we still have unemployment, and it is concentrated among uh, service workers, younger workers, and they're at risk of moving back home. Um, but you know, if as a contrast where we are now uh, with say the Great Recession, it's the residential non-residential flip. The, the concerns about rent, I think, are even more concentrated in the non-residential sector. So, the ability of restaurant tenants to pay landlords—that's where the concern is in the economy. Housing, on the other hand, seems to be uh, weathering this crisis uh, fairly well. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, I would not want to be owning a shopping center right now. <laughs> yeah, that, but you know what? Americans are creative, and they'll find something else to do with those buildings. That's right. That's right. Maybe, maybe housing. I mean, that's one of the things mm-hmm. that we were expecting to see already, that shopping malls were going to go out of business. A great place to build an urban village in some of these medium-density type neighborhoods. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what it seems like. Like a lot of what has happened is just an acceleration of what was already happening, more working from home, um, you know, more online shopping. So it, it, we just got there faster. And then the robots are coming. And that was the headline news for a while. Everyone's going to lose their jobs to robots and, and automation. And well, it turns out they lost their jobs to a pandemic instead, which brings us back full circle to, man, let's train these people on how to, how to be in the construction world. Um, right. Yeah. 
So if you were to buy a rental property, um, where would you buy it and what kind of asset class or would you? Uh, well, yeah. So uh, I think you, you need to choose your, your, your market carefully. If you're what, whether, whatever kind of, of real estate investment you're going to be making, I think you need to be looking at places that have solid population growth trends. So, you know, you're looking for a lower density type market. You're looking at a place that has a lot of momentum when it comes to population growth. And, you know, a good example right in that are states in the Southeast. So Florida, uh, Georgia, the Carolinas, uh, these are all places that will continue to have population growth. As a kind of a wild card, uh, I will go back to the Midwest. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think we are going to see maybe kind of along this band of I-70 of some of these cities that are affordable but have a lot of critical mass when it comes to economic activity. And businesses and individuals are going to give them a second look. And again, it's places like Columbus, Ohio, that mm-hmm. uh, I, th- I think are set for a kind of a real uh, leg up and jump in terms of growth but it will come at the expense of places like San Francisco and New York. What do you think about Cincinnati? And that seems to be growing as well, which is a bit of a surprise and, and Cleveland. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. So this is, <laughs> well, yeah, no, Cincinnati and Cleveland are good examples. You're looking for that kind of that medium sized metropolitan area that has really good housing affordability conditions to try to attract Gen Xers and millennials from expensive coastal areas. And so we, we already saw the round of it over the last decade in the mountain states, as we were talking about. And I think the Midwest could now experience uh, that kind of, of change. So that would be a good place to maybe take some risk and, and make uh, those kinds of real estate investments. The places that are high risk, there's only a couple of them, but they just happen to be hyper dense in places where a lot of people live. And we've, I've said it already, but you know, New York and, and San Francisco and Los Angeles and, and probably Chicago are places that are going to have a market adjustment. And that's what markets do. They adjust uh, given changing circumstances. Um, I think the real risk in those places is that policymakers need to recognize that investment can flow where it has the highest rate of return. <laughs> so further regulate or increase taxes they're going to have uh, real capital flight issues. Absolutely. I mean, it just seems like uh, there's a shortage of homes in, in places like Ohio where, you know, we've heard up till now that people are leaving. So how could there be a shortage of homes? But it seems like one of the reasons would be that there just wasn't a profit center there to build new houses in Ohio because they're so cheap. Houses are so cheap already. How do you make a margin there? Um, so that's just exacerbated the problem there. And I think, in my opinion, made it a great, great place to uh, for rental property or to, to build if you can. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my goodness, Robert. So such a pleasure to have you here with us today on the Real Wealth Show. If you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about uh, the National Association of Home Builders and, and how you serve builders. Yeah. So NAHB, we're, we're a trade association. We have uh, local associations throughout the country and state associations. There's about 600 of them. Uh, we have uh, 140,000 members, about a third of whom are uh, builders and remodelers, and the other two-thirds are associate members that uh, do uh, uh, financing and, and subcontracting and all kinds of work associated with residential construction. NAHBs, uh, we're based in uh, uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, I'm the chief economist here. I run a team of uh, 12 economists. We, we do uh, policy uh, research. We do forecasting, survey research. Uh, just things to help our members grow their businesses, uh, providing them uh, market intelligence. Well, sounds like uh, an important uh, <laughs> place to sign up if you're planning on building. All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for joining us here on The Real Wealth Show. Great. Thank you. 
And thank you for joining me here on The Real Well Show. If you'd like a referral to a great builder in those markets that we just talked about on this show who can help you buy brand new properties that are built specifically for rental, uh, just go to realwealthshow.com. And once you join, it's free to join. You'll see a list of what we think will be the best performing real estate markets over the coming years. And we've got teams in each of those markets to help you with a full service rental property where they help you acquire the property, they help you screen tenants and offer ongoing property management. Again, that's at realwealthshow.com. I'm Kathy Fetke and thanks so much for joining me here today.